You are listening to the Tour des Flâneurs, the cycling podcast at the 2021 Tour de France, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. On the eve of the Giro d'Italia, we released an extra episode all about wine. It featured Daniel Friedman's conversation with Greg Andrews of Divine Cellars in London, talking through the Giro collection that Greg had put together. The episode contained not a single mention of cycling, a first for the cycling podcast. And now Greg has done the same for the tour, putting together a cycling podcast Tour de France collection that pays homage to this year's route and some of the famous wine regions that we will pass through. And I was all set to speak to Greg about it. I had my questions ready. I was going to ask him which is his favourite wine, white or red? What's the optimum percentage of alcohol? What makes a good label? Does he have a favourite shape of bottle? And why does he say varietal instead of variety? Is it an Aussie thing? When I showed my questions to Daniel, he gently suggested, for reasons best known to himself, that he should do the interview instead. So here he is, Daniel in conversation with Greg Andrews. Well, Greg, um, not long since we last spoke before the Giro d'Italia, these... These grand tours are coming thick and fast, and our and our wines are coming, or your wines are coming thick and fast as well, because we've asked you again to curate a Divine Cellars or Tour de France case um, after the great, the roaring success of our Giro case. And um, well, I asked you when we spoke about the Giro what you first made of the route when I presented you with this task of um, of plotting your way viticulturally around Italy in the Giro route, and you. You expressed your approval then. You said it was, a, you know, it was a, it was a nice route to look for wines on or around. And what did you think of the tour route this year? Well, the the tour route this year, starting up in in Brittany and then sort of ducking down through the Loire. Valley. The only place, the only place in France where you can't buy wine, Brittany, pretty much. We could have, we probably should have slotted in a bottle of cider or two, actually, but. Um, but no, so we're ducking down into the Loire Valley, which is a good thing. There's a load, loads of good wines we can have a look at there. Obviously, in the Alps, there's always we can always sort of rustle up something a little bit different. Uh, but really, sort of, there's a lot of riding down in the, in uh, Languedoc, down in the south. So we're always going to get some really good value wines down in that corner of France. And I think they're always a little more indigenous, always sort of local grapes like uh, like the Madaram, which we'll talk about later on. Um, but yeah, there's some really good stuff, actually. Really, really good value, good solid wines in this tour, actually. What pleased and impressed me about the list that you came up with, Greg, was how subversive it was um, in the sense that you think of the Loire, you think of dry whites. You, have, you haven't gone for that. You've gone for a sparkling white and a red. Um, you think of... Well, the, the the south, and you might think of well, we're actually going into or close to Bordeaux. We, we in fact we are going to um, Saint Emilion, and you've gone for sort of the hipster Bordeaux, a, a Belgerac, um, which is a white, in fact, isn't it? You've gone yes. for there, uh, so we've gone for white, not a red. Um, we've got something from Savoie, something from the Alps, but. Talking of wine hipsters, a few years ago, the wines of the Jura became very sort of left field and fashionable and, and um, the, the hipster, the wine hipsters were, were drinking a lot of that for a time. And you've out hipstered the hipsters 
by um, slotting in a Van de Savoie. And um, yeah, there are lots of other very interesting things to ponder there. Um, was this was this deliberate? A lot of it was actually. I mean, partly because we obviously we had the selection for last for twenty twenty twenty. So I wanted to do something a little bit different. And Bordeaux was like was almost too easy, if that makes sense. To you, I think I wanted to introduce something different. And having visited sort of Bergerac and the Dordogne quite a bit myself. I just couldn't resist slotting in something a little bit different, having having something a bit more fun. And I think virtually, I took the same approach with the Loire Valley. Actually, we I thought right, it's a good opportunity to, to showcase some really good wines that people don't necessarily think of. And I think certainly with the the Loire Red, having a wine that we could chill, put uh, put in the fridge just before drinking, also a good option sort of at this time of year. Uh, and then of course the Alps. Well. Last year, we, we spent a lot of time labouring over some whites from the Northern Rhone, and we just thought, you know what, it's a good opportunity to showcase, to go further into the Alps and showcase some really, I suppose, more obscure, less well-known varieties, um, like Jacquere in this case. So we, we can look at uh, look at some slightly different varieties. Obviously, there's a slight catch with that. We do have a 100-odd bottles of the... Uh, the, the Jacquet, but so we will probably have to switch the sad wine mid mid tour, but we'll see how we go anyway. It should be definitely both cracking wines anyway. And if anything can happen in the tour, even in the Cycling Podcast Divine Cellars wine selection. Just bef- before we kick off, Greg, um, just a word in general about French wine. Now, I get a lot of flack, probably deservedly, on the podcast when I talk about French food and French cuisine because I'm not the biggest fan. Um, but increasingly as the years go by. But as far as French wine is concerned, um, this, I, I really ad- admire the French and the French wine industry for how kind of unapologetic it, it is and how, um, you know, I, I find French wine really interesting in that it's unapproachable a lot of the time. You know, it's not the, the same sort of mass market, um, uniform product that you, well, that has been a huge success in the new world or had been in, you know, places like where you come from, Australia and, and, and South America. And the French aren't scared of putting out wines that are quite, um, well, a challenge. Would you, would you go along with that or do you think that is changing? And I, I mean, I know there are a lot of, um, a lot of new world winemakers have made their nest now in France and I suppose they've almost dragged traditional French winemaking with them to a certain extent. But um, there, there is still that willingness to, to take risks, isn't there, in France? 100%. I think, I think France is an inc- it's still one of the biggest wine-producing nations on the planet. There's no question. So, so with that comes a great deal of diversity, um, and as well, I think more than ever, the young French brigade, very much like in in the Tour de France, there's always a couple of young riders that come to the fore. Equally, there's always a couple of sort of younger, more adventurous winemakers who, in many cases, have to go outside the big regions of Bordeaux, Burgundy, and you'll find a lot of those guys in the smaller regions of around Bergerac, the Loire Valley, uh, and particularly Languedoc-Roussillon, where you get a lot of these guys who are really adventurous and really quite passionate about doing something different and putting their stamp on things. Now, as you said, it's not always the most approachable wines because often they're made, as you would expect with the French, it's made to to sit at the dinner table comfortably. Uh, and equally, there's a level of, 
single-mindedness is probably the best word, where they, they want to produce something that they feel is right. And it's not necessarily always immediately obvious, but one thing's for sure, it generally reflects where it's from in terms of that thing called tower. As well, the good thing is I think a lot of French winemakers have evolved. I mean, let's let's look beyond Burgundy and Bordeaux. Let's look towards some of those new regions. And I think there's also a real hotbed of natural winemakers who want to, want to showcase the, the terroir, want to showcase the flavours of the region in many respects. And, and sometimes, Greg, um, I almost get a perverse pleasure out of drinking a French wine that is a bit of a, a sort of, well, as we said, is unapproachable and is almost like a proud middle finger at the, um, you know, the more sort of mainstream tastes that we've become accustomed to. No, absolutely. And I think, I, I think as well, the, the one thing is for sure, for French wines are made to go specifically, many cases, specifically with certain foods. You know, and, there's no, and those foods are usually that of the region. And as you say, it's almost, it's almost the middle finger towards anything else. You know, it's like, no, you're not meant to just drink this at the bar. You're meant to drink it with, you know, a, with duck. Usually, usually about three kilos of foie gras, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or if you're up in the Loire Valley, a good slab of goat's cheese or something like that. So definitely there's a, or if you're in the Alps, you know, there's gonna, there isn't going to be a slab of sort of hard cheese not too far from a bo- from a bottle of white. That's for sure. So, no, I definitely think that's the case. There's a level of, and I think that's self confidence. You know, the, let's face it, the the French have been, you know, one of the oldest making wine making countries on the planet, and certainly they're one of the biggest. So, of course, there's a level of confidence. Some people will say arrogance. I'm, you know, I don't agree with that necessarily. I just think it's a it's a self assuredness that the French have and there's still that incredible diversity so there is something for everyone it's just with france it's just a little more complicated to find it sometimes well greg we've got a few days to warm up for our first bottles because as we said the the tour starts in Brittany, and um, no wine really i don't think any wine at all is made in Brittany. maybe some of that stuff you 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 might find it on a market store in a sort of five liter vitel bottles that the local farmer as filled with his local brew but otherwise um really the sort of northernmost point of france certainly on the west side where you will find any decent wine um is the loire valley and we'll be there on stage six the loire valley most famous for its dry whites really isn't it but as we mentioned you've picked out a sparkling vouvray uh, white and a Saumur Champigny, which is a Cabernet Franc, uh, which is a, a grape variety that's I think more and more people are getting becoming familiar with. But talk to us a bit about those two. Well, I mean, first up, I think for a white, it almost would have been too easy just to go for a Sancerre or go for a uh, Terrain Sauvignon Blanc. I wanted to showcase something different, and so. I was I was kind of looking at various Vouvray's, some some other Chenin Blancs, and then I just realised we didn't have a sparkling wine for the tour, which I almost think is essential for the Tour de France, to being able to sort of either kick off the tour with a sparkling or or finish it. Although ironically, Greg, I, I might I might tell you something you didn't know here. Um, champagne is not allowed on the podium at the Tour de France um, because of French advertising laws um, yeah, against well the advertising of alcohol. So it's it's always been a bit of a paradox. That's 
been in place for 30 years or so. There's been no champagne officially on the Tour de France. Anyway. So when when they're cycling on the last stage and they usually share a glass, is that, that that's, that's not the Yeah, there's, there's a whole story behind that. It used to have to be kind of smuggled in illicitly and they have to be very careful not to talk about, you know, which, um, which winery it comes from and so forth. Ah, interesting. Because I've always had that association because of that image where you see the yellow jersey rider with, with with a flute of champagne as he's cycling along. But no, I definitely wanted to introduce something a little bit different. And I think sort of a sparkling Vouvray is for us something that we've 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 been selling for a few years now, and certainly since the inception of Divine Cellars, because it's it is such a refreshing. Um, lean, uplifting sort of wine. And I think the one we've chosen sort of spends two years in bottle before they disgorge that and sort of release the wine. So it's quite serious, but not with the same serious price tag that you would get with a champagne. So how would that compare to a champagne um, in the glass, Greg? What will people taste as different from a a classic brute champagne? I think straight up a little more mineral, sort of almost more... uh, a more Granny Smith apple type of uh, uh, vivacity. Almost you get a lot, that freshness comes and hits you. We'll have a lot more minerality because of the soil, the soils it's grown in. Um, and then certainly sort of the, certainly the older, it ages beautifully where it will start to round out and some of those lovely Chenin Blanc flavours will come to the fore. Uh, but definitely I think you'll find something that's a little bit more refreshing and uplifting than a champagne necessarily i think it and a roadshill as well they're usually not quite as fizzy but equally it'll still have the same acid structure so you do get something that's definitely um, definitely fun and definitely if you're going to have something if you're going to drink a sort of sparkling vouvray you want to be drinking it with seafood with oysters that type of thing really and certainly in in this weather in the warmer weather uh, that we might have an, on the occasional day. It's definitely a good bottle to have on standby, that's for sure. So that's, well, you can either drink that on stage six um, because Vouvray is just outside Tour where stage six starts, or you can save it for the Champs-Élysées because we've got another option on stage six, which is the Saumur Champigny, which is also just outside um, Tour. Now, talk to me a bit about Cabernet Franc. Um, Greg, when I think of Cabernet Franc uh, wines, um, I think this dates from when I first read about this grape variety long before I'd ever tasted any. Um, I read about how the, well, the grapes are a, a very kind of bluish shade. And I don't know about you, but I, I do sometimes associate certain colours with certain wines. And, and we talked about this last time, how the kind of, you know, the mental image, what it, whether it's of a place or a colour or something else, when you're drinking a wine can really affect your enjoyment and, and also the flavors um you taste in a wine and i, I always just think of that that kind of deep blue color when i'm drinking a cabernet from no de- definitely that sort of deep dark sort of bluish color is definitely one of the hallmarks of cab Franc. also a crunchy leafiness um and i know people probably look at me with what do you, how can a liquid be crunchy but it almost has you know cab Franc, isn't necessarily going to be smooth. It's going to be sort of have a have a bit of structure to it. It's going to be a little bit fresher. Uh, but the good thing about it is it doesn't have massive tannins. The tannins are quite fine. So with a and that's why with a lot of cab from from the Loire Valley, you can put a slight chill on it. So it's really versatile if you're having. And life. you can drink it young, I guess. I mean, this one I think is a twenty twenty. Hundred percent. So the this particular reason this this is one of our 
not just our more popular sellers, it's been very, during the last year of lockdown, people were buying cases of this particular wine. We're probably a couple of months into the vintage earlier than we would normally be. And good wines to drink with lighter meats as well, or, or even fish. You know, it wouldn't be, if you had, say, something like a monkfish wrapped in a, in a ham on, this would be perfect, you know, um, you know, for something like that. It would work really, really well. And that sort of that very crunchy hedgerow type thing that comes through through with this wine definitely makes it a really good summer wine for me. And just on that theme of the creating the, the mental picture uh, when you're drinking something, it always. I mean, if we move on to the next wines, we've got these uh, Van de Savoie. That's so that's the heart of the Alps where the race will be going. Um, well, the race is spending three days. Well, we've got a rest day there as well. Um, so three and a half days in the Alps. Um, but when people talk about those wines, they always talk about being sort of transported and, and almost feeling as though they're, they're sort of frolicking around on an alpine meadow and they describe the flavours as being sort of reminiscent of that. Um, is that just, again, is it just the same sort of phenomenon um, at work? It's it, rather than anything sort of intrinsic to the wine, it's actually just people having a very clear picture in their head of, of where the wine comes from and, and sort of um, superimposing the, the, those tastes and images on the wine. There's definitely, definitely people have that association with where they think where they last sort of drank the wine, but but very much in particular um, with with Jacquere, which is the great variety of the, the our first option on uh, on the Savoie wines, it does have a real sort of uh, white flowers, almost sort of wild mountain floral backbone to it, or sort of essence in the back of the wine. So it's it's automatic that when you that almost brings you back if you're ever sort of you know in the open air in the alps you, you do smell those wildflowers you do smell that sort of all, all those floral florals going on in the background you know the grasses all of that comes into play so you know i do see how that can automatically transfer you but equally some of the fruit profiles and things may be slightly different like you do get a sort of a lot of lean citrus in these wines you know even sort of some stone fruits like sort of green nectarine type flavors coming through yeah. And they, these wines, because they are in a cooler climate, they do sort of show some of these slightly leaner, greener type flavours. Um, not shy on acidity either, which makes these a really good choice for anything with a bit of cream or cheese, because it'll just simply cut through those animal fats really, really well. I mentioned, Greg, earlier that there was a period a few years ago when uh, wines from the sort of region neighbouring Savoie, the Jura, were really, were, were really hot and fashionable and hip um just taking his off piece for a, for a moment what are the the french wine hipsters drinking at the moment what have they been drinking uh, how, how do you impress your friends if you get invited to a uh, a french wine hipster symposium what sort of names do you need to drop so so jura is still very much part of that sort of scene but i think the downside to it is because it has become so popular the wines have become so ridiculously expensive to the point where some of them are inaccessible um, I know I know one particular producer, uh, Ganavat, who makes who makes some absolutely fantastic sort of uh, white wines. His red wines aren't bad, but his white wines definitely showcase. I mean, Ganavat is definitely one of the pinnacle producers of Jura, and his wines they use. I used to be able to sort of sell them for a sort of high, you know, high twenties, early thirties. Now I probably wouldn't get any change selling them for sixty pounds a bottle. 
and that's a, that's a five over a five year period. And there's really these wines have sort of almost gone into the stratosphere. But it's not just the whites either. That you you know with with Jura, you've got um, you know the reds where you have varieties like Mondeurs, which is you know most people have sort of never heard of or can't relate to. You know, are just a real or Trousseau where these these red wines are almost a shade darker than a rosé, but they're so light, fresh, and smashable. To which is probably a term we'll bring up later on. Uh, that you know that they can be drunk, not necessarily with abandon, but certainly you know, it's lighter, it's more frivolous, and people can have a lot more fun with them. Really. Well, that is on. So on stage ten, um, in fact, I mean, although these are kind of alpine wines, um, Van de Savoie. And um, we actually, or the race, goes past the front door, basically, of the two uh, wineries in question on the start of, at the start of stage 10, when we leave from Albertville and we head into the Rhone Valley. Um, we've also got a Rhone Valley wine, but we can save that for the following day, which is the big Mont Ventoux day, um, because you've chosen a Côte du Rhone, which is from, well, very very close to Tavel, which is famous for its uh, rosé, but it's also pretty much in the shadow of Mont Ventoux. But on Côte du Rhone, I want to, um, I want to run this by you. A few weeks ago, when I was still um, in London, um, I almost had a bit of a dust up with a with a with a, a wine retailer. Um, I, I must confess that um, I did betray you, Greg, and I went to buy some wine somewhere else in South London. And um, yeah, I requested um, a, a Rhone Red, or I was that was what I had sort of set my heart on that particular day. And um, yeah, we got into a pretty lively discussion about the about the value that. Rhone wines offered and I sort of said well I want to spend about 15 pounds 20 pounds and he sort of sniffed and said well you can't get a decent Rhone for that you need to spend about 40 50 quid which I you know frankly very very rarely ever spend on a bottle of Rhone wines but I always think Cote de Rhone is a fantastic bet for um, a, you know a reasonably pl- priced red and it's generally pretty consistent 100 percent, especially in, you know especially in the southern Rhone where the climate is pretty consistent and the plethora of producers or cooperatives through the Rhone region is just immense. I, I and I would disagree with that statement. Yeah, sure, you can, you can invest more money and get some really great serious wines from the Rhone region. But equally, spending sort of fifteen twenty pounds for a for a bottle of wine, I think you'll get some incredible value down there. You do have to search a little bit harder, and that's I suppose that's the big thing for me is being able to find some some really good interesting producers i mean that and this year we could have sort of we could have gone to von two and actually selected a producer from von two which generally you can probably buy a decent von two for around sort of 18 19 pounds people people will be familiar now or a lot of people will have seen von two wines um geographically well the the one with the Cote de Rome we've got is, is not very far away at all from the von two appellation but what will what is the difference greg um, between a Cote de Rhone um, from that neck of the woods and a Vontu? Well, specifically, Vontu will be just grown in the specific region, you know, in that specific Vontu region. Um, you know, the, those wines will be predominantly sort of Grenache and uh, will be Grenache-led. But also because of the altitude, they'll be a little bit more cool, cooler climate. So as a result, slightly fresher and probably be a little bit more, have a bit more acidity than what you'll get from a Cote de Rhone, where effectively 
people can source fruit from anywhere through the whole region. Whereas if you're making, if you're just looking at a Vontu, you can only specifically use fruit from the Vontu subregion. Uh, it's a bit like Chateauneuf de Pap. If you can't make a Chateauneuf de Pap with wine that's from Tavel, for example, or you know, you, or Gigondas, you have to make it from fruit in that specific region, and that's the big thing about it. it as well, the the minerality from the soils in Vontu will sort of be a different, will show differently to something, for example, than a Chateauneuf de Pap, for example, or a Cornas or or somewhere else. You know, you will see a different profile. Talking. Speaking of the cost of wine, Greg, um, a few weeks ago I was on the uh, another race, the Criterium du Dauphiné, and we stayed in Cornas, and I was very excited about this. I thought, you know, we'll have a fantastic bottle of Cornas that evening um, in the restaurant. We got the wine list, and frankly, it was all too expensive. It was beyond the budget. Um, you know, it sort of started at 60 euros a bottle. Cornas, there are some absolute fabulous Cornas, but again, because it is sought after and because people say, ah, you know, I, I, that's a fabulous, you know, people are prepared to pay a little more money for that. And part of it's fashion, part of it's smaller quantities, and those smaller quantities are obviously driven by, very sadly, things like the frost, we, the early frost we had this year, where we're even talking sort of producers will have a third of the fruit that they possibly had two years ago, which is a real shame, you know. So, and that's not going to help the prices for those, you know, in some of those regions that were heavily affected and as i kind of alluded to earlier in the southern Rhone, that's going to be less of an issue because obviously it, it wasn't as affected by frost as the north and, and you've got a little bit more sunlight and a little more warmer temperatures there to get things through i suppose science in sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2021 tour de france science in sport fueled by science So we go from one nice, well, I, I imagine um, peppery, beefy, quite serious red the, in in the Rhone to another even beefier, well, absolute sort of gangster of a red wine, um, the Madiron, which well, it has a reputation for being the biggest, baddest, most tannic of all French red wines, um, a real sort of, uh, well, uh, a kind of... Uh, and a wine that will will leave a, a mark certainly on on the gums um you'll certainly know you've had a glass of madiron talk to me about that wine Tan well the great variety used here tanat is uh, it's only really grown globally in this region i'm not really aware of it being grown i think there's some being a little bit being grown in south america but the reality is most is going to be grown in the southwest of france and you know it's It's prime for, as you say, being a lot of sort of red meat protein, whether that be duck, grilled beef. It's it's a colossal wine, and in terms of, it's a bigger wine than what people would think of Malbec. You know, Malbec from Cahors, for example. You know, it's a lot more immediate, and as you say, it doesn't take any prisoners, and certainly leaves you sort of with with stained teeth after chewing <laughs> chewing through a bottle, really. But it is southwest France for me and sort of there are a few wines from down there that i just see as iconic southwest fresh southwest french reds and that's certainly one of them i mean they're great value for what they are i mean as opposed to what you were saying about sort of corners here we are sort of you you've got these rich big deep reds but they're a fraction of the price what you might what you would get in bordeaux or northern rhone for that matter 
uh, or even Chateauneuf to Pap or something like that, you're talking sort of a third of the price for for similar levels of of muscular structure and just beefiness and unapologetic big red, really. I mean, alcohol-wise, without looking at the bottle, I can probably tell you it's somewhere, it's probably 14.8, which in wine-making terms is a little sort of margin for error. It's probably just edging over 15%. Also, this particular producer, he's not necessarily uh, certified organic or biodynamic, but he does work in a very sustainable, primal fashion. I imagine he's not, he's neither of those because he probably can't be bothered with the paperwork, I imagine. Um, knowing, having known some of, some of these type of producers, they they're really good sort of farmers and terrific at what they do. As a footnote to our discussion about biodynamic winemaking, um, in when when we last spoke about Giro wines, Greg, um, tell me if, if this is something you're aware of. With um, a good friend of mine who's a, a winemaker in Switzerland, a few weeks ago, um, so after the Dauphiné, I visited him, and um, we were drinking a fantastic well. A, a wine that you're familiar with that I'd bought from I brought back from the Giro, the um, Montepulciano d'Abruzzo from Emilio Pepe, and um, we were drinking this on a particular day. And my friend, um, he sort of disappeared off to his computer to look something up, and he said, "Oh yeah, it probably won't taste very good today because today's not the right. It's it's not the right." day to taste it and he, he then explained that in according to the biodynamic credo um you'll have to you'll have to remind me whether it's there are days that are root days there are days that are leaf days and um it's basically it's it's almost like star signs for wine and i wasn't aware that i knew about the you know winemaking and and viticulture according to the lunar cycles i didn't know that it was reputed to affect the wine on the particular day that you taste it Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm generally sort of a, a bit of a sceptic when people sort of, when I was initially told this, I was a bit sceptical and I was like, really? But I suppose I look at wine as a living, evolving thing. So even though it's not necessarily growing anymore in terms of not planted in the ground, you're not watering it or anything like that. But as a product, like any natural food product, it does evolve. You know, it does change and it is susceptible to heat variation and things like that. And a lot of people make the comparison with the tides of the sea. Um... Do you know, in terms of, I, and again, I, I, can't, I can't begin to extrapolate a, a link between the lunar cycle and why a wine would taste better today and tasting rubbish tomorrow. But what I can tell you is it's quite interesting. Even the London tasting calendar where we get, I get invited to a whole host of tasting events and so forth even the most conservative non-biodynamic <laughs> importer would still schedule their tastings on a flower day for example they would never schedule it on a root day so greg just remind me the the four different categorizations or four different categories of day what are they root flower you've got root flower fruit and leaf days and some of those days will be better days to sort of uh, drink wine some not so much and generally in wine tasting circles people want to try and avoid a root day as badly as possible it's really sort of the worst what the worst one for drinking wine to be honest um, people people don't feel as though the wine sort of shows as well as what it should do necessarily i'm going to start using this i'm going to start using this to explain you know various ways in which i'm falling short 
on particular days that, you know, I can't perform today because it's a root day. The thing is, it's just one of those things I, I mean, for example, yesterday, myself and the team, we were tasting wines, and yesterday was a root day, by the way. Uh, we were tasting wines, and some of them, which are wines that we've, we would expect far better from, we tasted yesterday, and they were, they were just flat. And I wouldn't say they were poor, but they were just flat. So, this afternoon, sort of, a, I had I retasted a couple, you know, one or two of those wines, and they were tasting significantly better, you know, in terms of, and admittedly, it may be they just had more time to open up and evolve, etc., etc. But you know, some people do live and you know live and believe in the in the in the biodynamic calendar when there are better days to eat fruit or eat cheese. It's not it's not specifically limited to just wine. But wine is obviously phenomenally affected by it. It's, it's probably it's probably too late for us to um, slip a little biodynamic calendar into the cases this year. But maybe that's something we'll do in we future. Can, we can possibly recommend. I mean, one of the one of the wines we've got actually, interestingly, the the Cote de Rhone that we were talking about earlier is called Luna Apogee, and it is from from a biodynamic producer uh, where all. All the fruit that they cultivate themselves and source is from biodynamic producers, and they, hence the name Luna Apogee, you know, in terms of they they're fully immersed in this whole, in this regime, shall we say, and definitely they would tell you, yeah, it's a good time to open it, you know, not necessarily a wine's going to taste shocking, but it just may not achieve its peak, if that makes sense. It's a wonderful excuse to have up your sleeve if you're a winemaker. Um, I, I can see I can see cyclists starting to employ this um, during the Tour de France. I suppose um, in many cases everyone has an off day, and I think the notion that you see wine as a living thing in cycling, Greg, in French cycling, it's known as a jour sans, literally a day without. Um, so yeah, but I didn't know wines could also have a jour sans, but now I do. Um, f- final, final wine of the selection greg um i said you'd been subversive and disruptive by not going for a red bordeaux and you've gone for a white belgerac um belgerac is the well it's the the region or the a town slightly to the east of bordeaux and um reputed to offer very good very good value, a, very, a sort of um, a, a baby brother of Bordeaux. Um, it's quite difficult to get good Bordeaux for not too much money, isn't it? But in, in Bergerac, that is possible, both with white and red. 100%. I mean, we, I think, again, after last year, we did, we did have a Bordeaux in the case last year. I wanted to do something, you know, a little bit different. Uh, equally, I think, in terms of most people sort of will know what to expect from a Bordeaux. But Bergerac, I think, which is literally, you know, less than half an hour away uh, from Bordeaux, really has a slightly different take on things. Uh, again, because of the the lack of disease pressure, a lot of the producers are organic or biodynamic, and they, you know, are producing some some top quality fruit, but they don't have the same stringent appellation rules or market pressures that you have in Bordeaux. So they can be a little bit different. So this particular producer here, um, Tour de Jean, you know, he's very much, he has one foot firmly in the natural winemaking camp where he makes uh, a wine called a Pet Nat, where, which is a Chenin Blanc and a Sauvignon Blanc Semillon blend that is actually fermented entirely in the bottle. 
Now it's cloudy when you pour it out. Now there's no way that that would ever be allowed in Bordeaux, you know. But certainly, sort of because of the the looser Appalachian controls, he can do those things and still put sort of um, Bergerac on the label, um, just because it's you know the controls aren't quite as stringent. But equally, in terms of this particular producer, you know this this wine itself. You know, it is a blend of Sauvignon and Semillon, showcasing sort of what, what a Bordeaux Blanc generally would. But it has a real sort of dry grassiness to it. It's refreshing and, you know, really good with sort of seafood and things like that. You know, that you want some refreshment that's not necessarily uh, elderflower and sort of, you know, that you get from a normal Sauvignon Blanc. It's a little bit drier and just a little bit more approachable, I think, you know, a little bit more almost textural, really, as well. So, yeah, good. I mean, as well, these guys sort of, they're not, they have, I wouldn't say a laissez-faire approach, but they're certainly a little more dynamic in their approach and do things a little bit more differently because they can. Well, Greg, at that point, the tour will be almost over. Um, that is going to be the decisive time trial, um, Liboron to Saint-Emilion. But just before we leave Bordeaux and go back to Paris, you're going to indulge me for a second because I've got a Bordeaux wine-related question. Um, I don't, um, unfortunately, don't have the resources to really collect expensive wine. But I do have one very expensive wine that needs to be drunk. It's a 1985 Chateau d'Iquem, very famous, uh, well, it's the most famous sweet wine in the world, a Sauterne, which is um, Bordeaux, or just outside Bordeaux. And what should I do with this 1985 d'Iquem, Greg? Um, because I don't like foie gras either, and traditionally, um, Sauterne is, is drunk with foie gras. So should I drink it that night? Um, well, it's obviously, you, you know, the foie gras is the thing, but it's not the only thing, you know, in terms of... I know a lot of people drink it as a dessert wine. We'll have it. I don't like desserts either, so I'm I'm stuck. <laughs> well, it is dessert. You could just drink it as the dessert. You could course, drink really. it straight from the bottle <laughs> <laughs> as the dessert course. I mean, that's something that myself and some uh, Aussie mates that was that was what we used to regard as dessert because we weren't we were none of us were a big fan of desserts per se. So we just thought, right, um, let's just have a glass of dessert wine and you know have it with a sort of us. I wouldn't say a softer cheese, but a, a less... Uh, okay, now we're talking. I can work with this. Yeah, I'd have something like that. I mean, equally, the great thing about Sautern is it is quite forgivable, and you can age it a long time. We generally sell quite a bit of Sautern in the cooler months, especially around Christmas, where instead of actually having it with dessert, have it as dessert, if that makes sense, where you basically have that and sort of maybe sort of with a little bit of cheese as you're having it. It'll kind of work really well. And, you know, I actually would, would prefer something like a Sauterne with with a cheese board, to be honest, than I would necessarily Foguar or something else. Because, again, it's got the acidity to cut through the the fats that a Foguar would have, but equally it's got the, that same acidity or cut through the cheese. Well, in, in three and a half weeks' time, Greg, I'll be the guy lying prostrate on the... Champs-Élysées, an, op- uh, an empty bottle of Chateau d'Iquem uh, rolling down the road. You don't have to drink it. The, the, the time bomb's not ticking on that one. That is good. Sure. Excellent. Well, I think, I think, Greg, I don't know how uh, abreast you are of the runners and riders at the Tour de France, but I think my bottle of Dicam is, is probably older. He's definitely older than the guy who's going to win the Tour de France. Um, any thoughts from you, Roglic, Pogacar? <laughs> It's kind of, I must admit, it's, I mean, it, 
a Frenchman surely due to win it this year, do you think? Or um... no, uh, I think there's the precious little hope of that. Really? Is... Yeah, I think I'll be. Yeah, there's more. There's more chance of me being able to afford a case of Dikem than a Frenchman winning. Really? Who was the rider last year who came close? Oh, my memory's gone. It's a couple of years ago. Thibaut Pino. You should remember that one. Yeah, uh-huh. Thibaut Pino. No, there was a guy quite a firebrand. Ala Philippe. Philippe, yeah, Philippe. Alaphilippe. Yeah, is he is he riding this year or is he injured? Or is he injured? No, he's very much here and going for the yellow jersey on the first stage. But um, yeah, very much an outsider. It's um, it's highly likely to be Slovenian the winner. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I mean, do you think do you think Team Ineos will come through come to the fore this year with the, with their or do you think they spent uh, spent their uh, their energy on the Giro? I'm not paid to give opinions, Greg, only to extract them. Um, but we'll we'll see what happens. Um, I, I'll definitely be tuning in. I mean, I but usually I always it always amuses me somewhere around Bastille Day. Usually a Frenchman will be near the front of the line anyway. Well, Greg, I will be checking up on you to check that you're um, that you're following the race. And um, very good. And we'll be checking in as well as regards well as we taste the wines and letting you know our thoughts but very much looking forward to it and um thank you once again for coming up with our, uh, such a marvelous selection good absolute pleasure i know richard richard should have his case sort of yeah don't expect detailed tasting notes from richard though i, I should warn you <laughs> no he, he does let yeah, me you... know when, when, when we get it right though that's for you sure. might yeah you might you might get the odd burp from him um <laughs> but that's about it. All good. All good, Daniel. Thank you very much for the opportunity again. It's been fun. And uh, yeah, looking forward to a really good tour though, that's for sure. Thanks for listening to this extra episode of the Cycling Podcast. Great questions, Daniel. If you'd like to buy the Cycling Podcast Tour de France collection, go to divinesellers.com. That's D-V-I-N-E sellers.com. C-E-L-L-A-R-S. A reminder that throughout the tour, starting from Saturday the 26th of June, we'll be producing nightly episodes as well as five episodes of Kilometre Zero a week, released Monday to Friday mornings. Thanks once again to Greg Andrews of Divine Sellers, and thanks to Hugh Owen, who produced this episode. <laughs>